What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. There's supposed to be a coup in Venezuela this week, but then the military didn't show up. Today, we're going to talk about this update in Venezuela on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Hello. So we've talked about Venezuela before, but Alex, real quick background for people who haven't been following or don't fully remember what we talked about last time. Sure. So on January 23rd, a guy named Juan Guaido, he's the uh, National Assembly leader, basically their, their Congress, and he declared himself the interim president of Venezuela. The reason why is Nicolas Maduro, who's currently the president, uh, has completely shat the bed in running the country. Um, high inflation, poverty is widespread, malnourishment, people are sick all over the place. So what Guaido did is he said that, look, the last election that Maduro, quote unquote, won in May 2018 was rigged. He's not the legitimate leader of Venezuela. Now, that's not just a pretext, right? The, the election actually was rigged. Correct. Yeah, like most international observers like, not just politicians in the country say that. Correct. And so there is a provision in the Venezuelan constitution which makes it so that if if the people in the National Assembly believe that the leader is no longer legitimate, that therefore the leader of the National Assembly can become president. And so that's where we find ourselves with Guaido saying he's president and Maduro saying, I am the president, and neither is really budging on their stances. Making this even more complicated, should be said, is the U.S. and 50-plus countries are behind Guaido in this case, and supporting Maduro are the likes of Russia, China, and Cuba. Well, it's, it makes for this like funny situation where you say Guaido is the president, right? But he's not actually the president. He's just the president as recognized by the United States. So right. it's a weird impasse where Venezuela has an internationally recognized president and the guy who actually is in control of the country. Exactly. So what has happened in recent days since the U.S. recognition and all this stuff kicked off? Yeah, so there have been a series of protests in the street of, you know, people supporting Guaido. There have been some kind of clashes with Maduro security forces trying to put down the protests, tear gas. It's been the kind of this weird stalemate, basically, for several weeks. But then on Tuesday, Guaido releases this video. Bueno, Venezuela, muy buenos días. And it shows him standing uh, what looks like an airbase flanked by armed soldiers with some armored vehicles in the background. And he's addressing the camera and he's saying, basically, look, uh, I'm calling on, you know, the people and the military to basically rise up and overthrow Maduro. Like, it's time. It's official. And he announces the beginning of what he calls Operation Liberty. So it's basically this military uprising that he's calling to overthrow Maduro. Operation Libertad. So he he very specifically claims that like the uprising has begun, not like saying it should, but he says literally our armed forces have responded to our call. We have come together in the streets of Venezuela, Operation Liberty. I invite you to be activated immediately, right? Like the, the way it's phrased 
is as if the, he knew the military was backing him and he was just sort of announcing it publicly and letting everyone who wasn't aware of this coup that he was launching. Because it is a coup, right? Like that, right. Like that is literally calling— and it- and it looks like it, right? Crew. He's yeah. standing there flanked by armed soldiers and armed vehicles. So it looks like, okay, yeah, this is happening. Only adding to that is that there was support from the U.S., right? Guaido's biggest backer. You've had people in the 48 hours since that video basically say things like Patrick Shanahan, the acting secretary of defense, say this is an issue of freedom versus tyranny and that we're considering all options in support of the Venezuelan people. National Security Advisor John Bolton tweet to... Uh, folks in Maduro's cabinet, so to speak, saying things like, your time is up. This is your last chance. I mean, you don't make these kinds of statements, really, unless you feel like this is the moment. Like, you are really gearing yourself up for failure if you don't have the military on your side, if you don't feel that you can actually topple Maduro with this move. And yet. It it was this party, basically. It was Guaido's coup inauguration party, except the guests of honor, all the soldiers with their tanks, did not show up. They just didn't come. Yeah, so it turns out that those people who were flanking him were mostly, we think, National Guard. So he does have some support within, like, the armed forces writ large. But the military en masse did not do what he said was about to happen. And there were just kind of the normal protests that have been happening for the past, you know, two months or so. So there were people in the streets, but the Maduro security forces responded against the protesters in the streets, right? There's this horrific video uh, we saw on social media of one of these armored vehicles being driven by Maduro security forces driving directly on purpose into a crowd of protesters and running several of them over. There are scenes of them firing tear gas, and so there are clashes. So there wasn't a military uprising. If anything, the military security forces, as usual, responded and tried to put down the protests. And it should be said that Venezuela doesn't have a military in the sense that we think of it. The armed forces of Venezuela are disparate, and but they're basically all— part of one movement to support the Constitution, ergo uh, Maduro in this case. Up until, well, I think still now, the Venezuelan leader, uh, military leadership has been very vocal in its support of Maduro. The theory of the case here from Guaido and others seemed to be that the rank and file didn't follow what the leadership was saying, and so that they would basically come to Guaido's support. Some did defect to Guaido's side. Some even sought asylum in, in, in embassies. But at the end of the day, they didn't do what Guaido said they were going to do. But it's a weird situation, right? Because it took Maduro a really long time, a surprisingly long time, according to people who study coups, to come on TV and say, yeah. the coup's over. He's been defeated. And right, this, it seems to suggest that Maduro isn't really sure that he has the military's support either, has control over the military. It's just like, it's this odd situation where we know that Guaido is not currently the actual president, but we also know that Maduro isn't secure yet and hasn't crushed this uprising against his rule. It's, it's like we're all waiting. Right, for it's like everybody was holding their breaths to see what was going to happen, including the U.S. government, which is— weird because to make these announcements, these proclamations, it's very bold and decisive. And, you know, now we even have Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, uh, in an interview with Fox Business was saying military action, meaning by the United States, is possible if that's required. And if Maduro doesn't step down, that's a, a pretty clear red line. Alex, I think you made that point earlier. 
did they get the intelligence wrong? Like, did they think they had more military support than they really did? Like, who knows what happened? But we're back to basically square one now. Yeah, just just to put a finer point on that, I think both sides kind of lost, so to speak, yesterday. Guaido clearly didn't have the support that he said he had. But I think it also shows that Maduro, uh, Maduro's late reaction, as Zach pointed out, I think also shows that he doesn't have the support he kind of has. Like, if, if he had full... Uh, control over the armed forces, you would imagine tanks rolling through the streets, you'd imagine flyovers, you'd imagine massive groups of troops just trying to quell the situation. He didn't have that. And as you said, it took him a while to come out. So I think it shows that his control on power is is weaker than he may say. But what this really shows then is how intractable this problem is. Right. Right? It goes to show that even with U.S. support, even with Guaido's statements, they can't really get this guy out. And Maduro, who his control on power is still uh, up for debate, but it also does seem to show that he can stay in like their White House, right? But he's losing the he's losing his grip slowly but surely. The Trump administration is playing a kind of confusing and potentially destabilizing role here, right? They have made it their policy to topple Maduro, right? right. There's no question that the U.S. policy is regime change at this point. Yeah, it's explicit. Yeah, it's very explicit, right? There are factions in the administration, most notably National Security Advisor John Bolton, who are really hawkish on this situation. And the, the scariest thing to me is the potential for this to turn into, through U.S. nudging or through just conflict on the ground, actual conflict, right? It's it's not implausible that competing factions of the Venezuelan armed forces could start shooting at each other. Right. And I think there's a really important question for us as three of us are American citizens, and we're talking about our government, being involved very actively in overthrowing a government in a country in Latin America where people who have read history might Remember, literally uh, any history <laughs> is, is literally, yeah, anything. You can just read Wikipedia and it'll tell you. We haven't done so great at doing this before. We have a pretty shitty record at overthrowing probably democratically elected or at least, you know, legitimate leaders in Latin American countries and installing someone we like instead and then proceeding to see, you know, massive war crimes and horrific things happen to destabilizing countries that have ramifications to this day. So do we really want the U.S. government to be going this far and saying, like, we're considering military intervention to topple this regime. I mean, the problem in this case, though, is that Maduro is not only a monster, he's a dictator, right? He has shown no signs of reconsidering Venezuela's disastrous economic policies right. that have turned one of the wealthiest countries of Latin America into uh, one of the poorest. He has repressed violently at times dissent, right? Like, it's not— crazy to want this guy out. In fact, he should be out of power. Right. The question is whether we can trust John Bolton and Elliot Abrams, who literally is responsible for some of the U.S. government's human rights abuses during the Cold War uh, in Latin, in Latin America. America, with this kind of policy. And like, uh, God, it's, it's difficult. Right. I mean, you have the also the legacy of the Iraq War, right? So the Colin Powell famous line, like, you break it, you bought it. We as a country, are still pretty traumatized, I think, about the decisions and the aftermath and what happened with the Iraq War. And, like, you invade a country, and over a decade later, we're still involved in trying to make sure that country becomes stable. And, like, do you want to launch something like that all over again in Latin America? 
So here's an example uh, of something that ties in how intractable this problem is and also this debate. So I got to spend some time at the Venezuelan embassy here in D.C., and you should know that Maduro's people are not there at the embassy. They gave the keys over to American anti-war and anti-interventionist activists like Code Pink, Popular Resistance. And what they're doing is they have a, they're basically taking care of the embassy to keep Guaido's people out. And when I went to go interview them, what they would say is that some of them actually like Maduro and say he's not a dictator and that, he, in fact, he hasn't stolen the election, that he hasn't rigged things in his favor. Okay, fine. They can believe that. They're Venezuelan they, tankies. They're Venezuelan tankies. And then on the other side, you'll you'll have some other people who are just kind of like, look, we don't like Maduro, but we shouldn't intervene. And this is this is where, where the left kind of is. Right. Um, they are now really pushing back against Trump. And you can argue for good reason for pursuing this policy, but they are having trouble reconciling with the fact that, like, the majority of Venezuelans don't like Maduro, that he's made the country worse. And like, so in the yeah. ideological space, this is an intractable problem. And then the, literally what's happening on the ground. Right. And I'm so glad you brought that up. I, I was listening this morning uh, to some audio of protesters clashing with the like pro Maduro U.S. Uh, activists. And it was really wild because like these were, you know, ostensibly like Venezuelan expats who were yelling. They're like, why are you Americans, like, blocking this thing we're trying to do in our own country? Like, it was very odd for anti-interventionist people to be actively intervening in another country's politics. But it shows, like, how divisive and confusing this issue is because you have a bad guy, but to get rid of him, you have to do something that could be very bad, military intervention. I should note that one person I interviewed uh, was wearing a Chavista shirt. Chavez is the mentor for Maduro. Okay, so that's hard. Uh, it's complicated. I mean, there's a general sense that U.S. direct military intervention would be bad, but beyond that, it's kind of hard to figure out what to do. After the break, we're going to talk about something that's a lot less morally complicated, which is an extremely racist poster put up by a racist German political party. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
Welcome back. Uh, now we are going to talk about an extremely offensive poster put up by AFD, which is Germany's far-right party, which is on the rise there right now. Jen, give us the background as to where this is all coming from. So AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, Alternative for Germany, is this, I would maybe describe them as Nazi light. They are a very far-right, anti-immigrant, express very Islamophobic, anti-Islam views. And they're very well known for putting up ads that are explicitly anti-Muslim. Like in the previous election, we saw a lot of these. Um, our, our former Vox colleague, Sarah Wildman, did some really great coverage of this at the time. But now they put up another one. So this is an ad that is centered around a painting from the 19th century, and it's a painting of a, of a slave auction. It's called Slave Market. It's by Jean-Léon Jerome. And what you see is a black or, or North African man dressed in a very exaggerated manner, right? Not exactly the way that people at the time would have dressed, but sort of a white person's perception of how they might have dressed. Right, like a, you know, big fancy turban and, you know, robes and stuff. A very Orientalist caricature of actual dress styles. And a naked, very pale-skinned woman, possibly European, but it's not super clear. And the Oriental stereotype man is looking at her teeth, examining her in a way that very strongly implies that she's being sold into sexual slavery. Right, there are these other men kind of looking on as he, like, looks at her teeth like, hey, I'm selling you this white lady into sexual slavery. That's the strong implication of the painting. So, there's that painting, and then on the ad, it says, vote for AFD so that Europe doesn't become Eurabia. In other words, so that the Arabs don't take over Europe. That's so fucking gross. Yeah. <laughs> so I have nothing more really to add than that. I mean, it's it's uh, this is very clearly part of the political problem happening in Germany, but also in lots of parts of Europe. And it's very clearly um, coded, um, but like very thinly veiled. Is, in that, its even, code. is that even coded? I right? think that's it not, is. Like, you can just look at that painting and you get it. Like the Muslims are coming to rape our women. And yeah, that's, that's like yeah. That's, I mean, that's the text. I, it's not I, the I mean, subtext. I mean, I think it's coded, but like the worst form of coding. Like right. it's the most thin veil ever. I, I think it's also worth looking at the context of the painting itself because I think it tells us something really interesting about the the language and the uh, surrounding it and the use of it by this German far right party so the the painter Jerome went to North Africa in the mid 19th century and he spent some time just sort of observing and sketching things but interestingly this painting is according to a leaflet that the Clark Institute uh, the US based place that owns the painting said is uh, it was probably done in studio right but he used his experiences in Egypt and other North African countries to legitimize this painting of a, of a scene that almost certainly did not happen, right? So it's an open-air slave market, which historians have not been able to find any evidence of happening at that period of time in those areas. Right. And, you know, I made this point when we were talking about this earlier. This very specific scene is a fair-skinned, very European-looking white lady being sold at a North African slave market, which— wasn't exactly how the slave market tended to work then. The people most likely to be exploited by slavers were other people of color. But it's very clearly part of this broader Orientalist tradition, right, where European artists and philosophers and travelers would go to North Africa and to the Orient, as they called it at the time, where you get Orientalism, and then they would bring back 
their views and then translate them through the cultural, religious, Western-dominant European view. And that's how you end up with a painting that shows scary Arabs selling our white women into slavery. And in this case, these kinds of representations of the Muslim world came to feel, came to be real for a lot of people in the 19th and 20th century when it came to understanding the Muslim world. What's fucking insane to me as just someone watching this is that they are literally using an actual Orientalist trope from the 19th century in the fucking exact same way to do the exact same thing in 2019 to once again demonize Muslims, to once again rally like white Europeans to be scared of Muslims for the exact same political reasons. And centuries later, we haven't fucking learned a thing. I want to thank our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for wading through all of the words that we use. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.